Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's Health Department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, Stephanie Desmond speaks to Jeremy Green and Graham Moon, two faculty at the Institute of the History of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Their discussion focuses on the 1918 influenza pandemic and how history can inform our response today. Let's listen. Today I'm here with Graham Mooney and Jeremy Green, medical historians from Johns Hopkins University. With the coronavirus pandemic, we haven't seen this kind of call for social distancing, for social isolation since the 1918 flu pandemic. We're seeing schools are closed, we're seeing stores are closed, people are being told to stay home and stay away from other people. How does this event compared to what we saw over 100 years ago. Jeremy? Thanks for, thanks for bringing up that question, Stephanie. Uh, I, I think that you know, no one in our lifetime has experienced the kind of social disruption in the name of public health um, that we are seeing on this scale today. And yet, if we look back a century to the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic, which claimed you know, at, at least 50, 60 million lives, perhaps many more Around the globe, and which uh, you know, which has killed more than six hundred thousand in the United States alone, we find a set of parallels to our own experience. Um, we know that the influenza came so quickly and was so rapidly disruptive on its own right that it then triggered a set of public health responses, which are what we now call social distancing, public gathering bans, school closures, and several other means um, that not only parallel our experience, but actually become the historical basis and even a database on which our current policies uh, designed by the Department of Defense, the uh, Centers for Disease Control, and the World Health Organization are really based in no small part on the historical data from this pandemic uh, roughly a century ago. And there are a few important lessons to take from this. And some of you may have already seen comparisons we made recently uh, Mark Lipsitch at, at the Harvard School of Public Health, among others, between the city of Philadelphia and the city of St. Louis and the vastly different uh, mortality that took place during the same epidemic in these two cities, partly because of the role of these non-pharmaceutical interventions, these social distancing techniques in helping to flatten the curve, a, a phrase that many of us didn't know a few weeks ago and now is on everyone's lips. Um, but I'd like to take us a little bit deeper into this because this is one of these areas in which history really directly informs present practice and our hopes for future management. Um, there's a study that was done by two historians at the University of Michigan, Howard Markell and uh, Alexandra Minister, and headed a team of researchers that compared the very different kinds of social responses among 43 different American cities. And they found substantial variation in both what kinds of social distancing responses took place and the effects on the curve of uh, mortality and morbidity. And just Without going into too much detail, what they found was that in a city like Pittsburgh, which implemented public gathering bans later into the epidemic and then school closures only afterwards, 
Um, there was three times as much mortality over the course of the epidemic than in cities like St. Louis, which implemented uh, public gathering bans and school closures together in a coordinated, layered, early, and sustained fashion. And it's from this sort of data and this sort of analysis that a lot of our current policies take shape. Um, I, I repeat this a few times just because even though we've all seen that curve now, um, understanding that there is a real historical database that this comes from and that we need to carefully extrapolate ways in which the situation is and isn't like the influenza pandemic in order to figure out just how long we will be managing these conditions in the present day and whether they will be enough and what other kinds of preparations could take shape. People don't like to be told to stay home, especially Americans, right? There's a lot of talk of freedom in this context, but you're telling us that history tells us that we need to listen and to keep our distance. Yeah, um, I think that that question of freedom and liberty is very important. And the, the kinds of measures that Jeremy was talking about, what we now call social distancing measures, by the time the 1918 influenza pandemic broke out, the sorts of legislative powers that were required to implement those social distancing measures were already in place. They were part of what came to be known or was already known as the new public health uh, in the early 20th century. And the new public health was about focusing as not just so much on the environment, as you know, the old style of sanitary intervention, you know, sewers, drains, um, and water supply. It was also about thinking how individuals could be managed so that they didn't put other people at risk. And some of this was reinforced by the gradual acceptance of the germ theory from the early 1870s and 1880s onwards. But a lot of the things that that were put into place, such as closing schools, uh, such as disinfecting people, such as isolating people in hospitals. These all had their origins in the mid to late 19th century. And the way in which they were sold by politicians to a sometimes sceptical and resistant public was that, you know, if, if you want to be free to go about your life, you know, to conduct business, to travel around the city, um, to participate in society, then when we're threatened by epidemics, and here we're not talking about massive outbreaks like influenza, we're talking about you know maybe uh, an outbreak of scarlet fever or diphtheria or measles. When you're faced with that, then you have to restrict your own freedoms for the good of the community. So the, the, a lot of this legislation was bound up with a language and a rhetoric of liberalism, of you know, what is the role of freedom and coercion in society, not just in public health. So you um, have studied quarantines, I know. Uh, that's a word we're hearing a lot of. Um, what, is, what is a quarantine? And tell me about the history of quarantine. What's well, a... That's a deceptively um, complex question. Um, it's um, yeah, the, the origin of the term quarantine, I'm sure most of your listeners will know by now, it, it comes from uh, the Italian for 40 days. Um, it actually has a, uh, a biblical meaning in terms of a period of cleansing, but it was adopted in 
particularly in the, the, the northern Italian states uh, during the, the late uh, Middle Ages to indicate the period of time that a ship, when, you know, it was a maritime quarantine, when a ship entered the port, if it was suspected of having infected passengers or crew, 40 days was the period that people had to spend isolated, either on the ship itself or in a specially built quarantine station. So that's sort of, yeah, it has very deep historical origins. Um, and quarantines have been used to a greater or lesser, lesser extent ever since then. Um, but it can also mean, quarantine can also mean just the isolating of particular groups uh, or the isolating of individuals. So when we're being asked to quarantine, a lot of, a lot of us may carry sort of um, very negative assumptions about quarantine means because we associate it with these quite draconian, drastic measures where there's a blanket um, request not to move or not to travel and not cross boundaries. But in terms of self-quarantine, really it means um, restricting your own movements on a very, if you like, a micro level that's based on what individuals do. Um, So not leaving your house, not going down to a bar and so on. So that, that very ambiguity of the use of quarantine is, yeah, it, it can cause confusion um, amongst the public unless it is explained very clearly uh, by the people who are asking us to practice self-quarantine and self-isolation. So, uh, Jeremy, I want to talk a little bit about sort of um, what we'll see in the coming weeks and months and sort of the value of historical analysis in this context. Yeah, thanks. I, one of the things all, all uh, historians almost say, like reflexively, is that we're much better at the past than the future. Um, but there's there's always this importance of trying to figure out what we can take from the past into the present and the future as well. All historians operate in a present, and this present is an urgent one. I, I think if you look at what happened in 1918, 1919, um, you know, the average length and duration of the social distancing times was about four weeks, and the range is about one to ten weeks. And yet, here we begin to trip up on a number of problems. So influenza virus is a very different class of virus than the coronavirus, for example. And we know uh, that the problem of greater asymptomatic carriage, of um, longer duration, latency before uh, you know, uh, initial contact and development of symptoms and recovery, all of this forces us to stretch and really get conservative estimate, at least double, if not longer, think about um, how long social distancing would need to take place to be effective. And we've seen this really just in the last week in the, the making public of different reports that begin to suggest these timelines going into the fall, going into next year, 18 months. And it brings us to a really important question, which is that we know a lot about how epidemics begin. And we know a lot about these early phases of attempts at, uh, at containment or if containment fails at surveillance. Um, but Examples of how epidemics end are much harder to trace, and there are many, many different paths whereby this can end, including false endings or or slowing down, but you know, recurrent cycles. Um, and without trying to just inflame fear, it's it's very hard for us to know how to project forward. What kind of a trust can be built in balancing the duration of these interventions for as long as they would be needed? to have a significant public health response. So he, here we get into some crucial issues, which I think history also has 
something to say about, which, which is which is trust um, and how it is that we find ways of having a credible uh, relationship between information that is circulated about the epidemic and public health management and the ability of people to to comply with with these measures. We also learn a lot thinking historically about the different kinds of experiences and different forms of social change that epidemics bring about. We know that epidemics bring a, a massive disruption of everyday social life. We have, we've all already experienced that in many ways. But there are also ways in which different epidemics can inflame ethnic, racial, class tensions. Um, and yet, in other examples, see responses that actually work effectively to limit xenophobia, to bridge ethnic divides, and to actually pull together and build forms of social solidarity. Uh, I was just reading a study earlier today by Julia Irwin, a historian, uh, who looked at uh, what happened with ethnic divisions in the city of New Haven during the 1918 epidemic. And she found that contrary to perhaps expectations, the epidemic led to a moment of tolerance and rapprochement between uh, nativist Americans and uh, the Italian American immigrant community within New Haven. And, and both English language papers and Italian language papers in the city of New Haven found ways to work together to pr broadly support public health measures that did not stigmatize and did not demonize. Um, and there are many, many other examples, on the other hand, of ways which we've already seen that the hint of an epidemic can lead to blaming stigmatization based on um, inflaming ethnic and racial tensions. So I think when we look at different epidemics over time, whether it's looking at uh, you know, cholera in the 19th century, whether it's looking at influenza in the early 20th century, um, or even you know, exa examples from plague to from, you know, 20th century plague outbreaks to, uh, to our more recent experience with uh, SARS, Ebola, and, and all of them offer different mirrors into the present. And I think part of the job of the historian is to help us understand continuity and change. To what extent is our experience like what happened in the past? To what extent is it different? How is it that, that not only does a present day differ from influenza, but to looking at lessons from cholera, lessons from, um, from yellow fever, lessons from bubonic plague, help us expose different aspects of the social reality of an epidemic in a way that helps us mount a better response today. It looks like this will be something that we'll all be uh, reading about in history books going forward for many years. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharpstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen-McCusker with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.